Sports Radio 104.3 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. All right. I tell you what, from my home studio in Fort Collins, it sure is, uh, looks like it's going to be a beautiful weekend and a great weekend to get outside in our wonderful state. And I'll tell you what, people are. You know, I was talking to somebody the other day, and we have no youth sports. Uh, you can't go to a movie. People aren't going out and eating, obviously, yet. And there's just not a lot to keep people inside. And I think even people who haven't regularly done outdoor activities are turning to them, and that's fishing, camping, hiking. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit during the course of the hour and making sure we're respecting the resources as we do that. But we're also hoping that a lot of you who get outdoors are going to make it a mainstay in your life uh, because it can bring so much to your, your life. There's such a value system and such a way of bonding in outdoor activities that hopefully a lot of people will get reawakened to that. Speaking to outdoors, there's a real outdoor enthusiast going to join us right now. We'll go to the phones. And joining us, he's he's a Hall of Fame fisherman. He's the host of uh, Lake Commandos Fishing on Television. Uh, He's become a very good friend of mine, and that's Steve Panaz. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Terry. How are you? You know, I'm doing okay. And I, I assume you're seeing the same things in Minnesota, that more people are going out than than ever before. Is that what you're seeing? You know, fishing licenses are up year to date to over 40% in Minnesota. And I'm hearing that from other states. And what's interesting is you just get out either on the trails or in the woods or on the water and uh, there's people out. And it's, it's so much fun to see that uh, you see families and friends and things uh, just enjoying the outdoors. And that's really, uh, that's really a wonderful thing. Well, and it hasn't totally um, reflected in retail sales yet. Um, but we've got to remember that the big box stores and even the small dealers were closed for several weeks. And I think we'll see a catch up there in outdoor sales because we need to support those people as this industry grows. So hopefully we'll see that take place and we'll see a lot of people camping and fishing going into the future. But speaking of fishing, that's what you and I want to talk about. That's truly one of both our passions. It's driven our careers in the outdoors. And one mm-hmm. of the things that that Lake Commandos does is you go to new lakes, bodies of water you're not necessarily familiar with. And I think a lot of people are faced with that right now. I'm going to some place, either I haven't fished in a long time or I haven't ever fished before. And how do I start? What do I do? And there's a few tips and tricks, I think, that you can pass on to people. And even if it's a lake you fish a lot, it's going to change, especially out here in the West. You know, back in the old days when I was writing for In Fisherman, we used to say FLP, the fish, the location, and the presentation. And that probably hasn't changed much, Steve. No, that's a that's still a brilliant and really a, a key factor in terms of you know locating fish. But one of the nice things about fishing new bodies of water is you go into them without any memories, and and that allows you to approach it fresh and really let the water and the fish tell you what to do. And and that's one of the things I like to do. So there's really three things I like to use. I like to use seasonality. The spawn drives everything during the summer. These fish are you know they're kind of in their midsummer patterns in the fall. They're a little more unpredictable, but uh, still catchable. And then, you know, the other thing is I like water clarity. I really like um, if you got a super clear body of water, I usually start deeper. If it's, if it's more turbid, I'll start shallower. 
And and then the other thing I like to do is make sure that I have, if I got two or three guys in the boat, uh, everybody use something different until the fish give you an indication of what they want. Just yesterday I was on a small river right by my house and a buddy of mine was throwing live bait on jigs and he caught three or four fish and I had nothing on soft plastics. And yesterday they wanted live bait, so I switched over. It was key. But if we had both been throwing soft plastics, we probably wouldn't have known that. So, you know, those are three of the things I like to use. Well, I know we're going to talk about once you start catching some fish, patterning them then so you can have a more successful day. The biggest problem I have is after decades in this industry is that the fish have never attended my seminars or read my articles. They, they have no <laughs> idea how they're supposed to act. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, and the other thing is when I tell somebody what they should try to uh, approach to go somewhere and fish, it works for them. And then I go out to the same spot and it doesn't work for me. So, <laughs> but you know, there's, there's so many variables in fishing and we go out and day to day, hour to hour, it changes. But I know you're a huge proponent of pattern fishing. Kind of tell people what pattern fishing, pattern fishing is. Well, really what pattern is, is when you build the right pattern, you know where the fish are, your, your, your approach to them is the most effective. So things like weight of the, of the lure, the size of the line, the size of the sinker, the direction that you're bringing the bait into the fish, the color of the lure, all of those have an impact. I'll never forget one of the early trips on Lake Commandos. We were fishing a power plant lake in Texas, and we were both throwing Berkeley trigger crossing green pumpkin on a four-odd hook with an 18-inch leader on a Carolina rig, but this young man I was fishing with was throwing it on a three-quarter ounce weight, and I was throwing it on a half ounce weight. He had a fluorocarbon main line, and I had a braided line for a main line. And we pull up to this spot, and our lures land 10 feet apart, and he catches a fish. And over the next 10 minutes, he caught five, and I caught none on the exact same lure. And I, I turned to the camera. I said, I don't know why this is making a difference, but I switched to a three-quarter ounce weight, and I switched to a, a braided, or a, from braided to a floral main line, and I caught a fish on the very next cast. So there are those little things that can make big differences. And as you build patterns, you want to look at every element of your presentation and start tweaking them until you start, you know, really developing what the fish want that day. And, and that's really what it's about, isn't it? You still have to obviously understand probably what's going on with those fish. You have to go to the lake with a little bit of a game plan. Are they in the spawn? Are they, would they typically be shallow this time of the year in this weather? You need a starting point, even if that's not where you end up. And then you have to find some fish, but then you have to refine what you're doing and having different anglers. Sometimes I've been on trolling. Uh, when I used to cover the PWT for in fishermen, we'd be trolling yep. a huge body of water and the, the, the angler, one angler in the boat, but he'd have, depending on how many lines he could have, he might have two or three different lures at different depths behind the boat. And as they caught more fish, he would adjust the other lines, not on just one fish, because one fish doesn't probably tell you enough. That could that could actually almost take you away. You need a little bit of repetition, don't you think? You really do. And the one thing that I found is salmon, uh, particularly, especially in the Great Lakes, they would get it down to a certain color combination on a spoon. And you could have a red spoon with a bright green stripe catching a ton of fish, and you could have a a, you know, the same color spoon with a with a different color green stripe and not catch a fish on it. They were that particular. And you see some of that in walleye fishing or, or bass fishing. Not to that extent typically, but it does show you that little tweaks can make a big difference. 
Well, I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. Then I want to get down to maybe breaking down a few smaller lakes and all people. But um, I have a, I had a son, Jeff. He passed away. But um, Jeff and I used to fish together quite a bit. And Jeff uh, loved to troll, and I loved to jig. So we were out on this lake, and uh, we were we were fishing for walleyes. And I wanted to jig for him, and he, he wanted to troll. So finally he kept bugging me. I said, okay, we'll troll for an hour. If we don't get any, we're going back to jigging. And I found we were going to use uh, nightcrawler harnesses uh, with, uh, with bottom bouncers. And I found this huge, ugly, off-color green spinner blade in my box and put that on his bottom bouncer, thinking no self-respecting walleye would get within 10 feet of it, right? <laughs> and I, I put on what I thought would be the best. I don't remember what it was, but, you know, my, so at least I'd catch a couple fish. Well, after he had five and I had none, there was not another – another blade like that in the world (laughs) and it just showed you the little differences which you said things can make it's just amazing but suppose i'm i'm you know maybe i'm not a a seasoned angler but i'm approaching a a new lake and uh, what are some of the things i keep in mind and do you power fish at first do you finesse fish Do you really start out with what you think is best or do you try to locate the fish first you know, one of the things I'd like to do is ask other anglers if they've been on a body of water, just just go online or, or talk to someone at a bait shop or, or or a friend and just say, hey, I'm going to the lake. I've never, I'm not a, I'm not a real seasoned fisherman. Could you provide any tips that would, would help me get on fish? And I think the first thing is key is the, the location. If you're shore fishing or from a boat, to make sure you're kind of in the right zone because, uh, you know, one of the truisms in fishing, you just can't catch anything that isn't there. And then I would start more of a medium presentation, uh, meaning that, you know, you've got, you don't have to go ultra light, you don't have to go power fishing, but it's something that's more uh, subtle in presentation and let the kind of build from there. Now, when, when out here in Colorado, we tend to have a lot of clear water. So when it comes to, you know, you talked about going through your choices of presentations, um, if I'm really searching, I might start with a brighter color. But typically out here, whether it's a hard bait or a jig, I tend to throw very neutral colored presentations because the fish out here see a lot of presentations, and I try to give them no negative signals. How do you approach that part of it? I think that's a great approach. I mean, I think when you have uh, pressured fish, I fish on a lake that gets over 400,000 hours of fishing pressure a day, um, a year on it. I'm, I'm looking out the dock right now and I see about 15 boats running around in the spots that I fish all the time. And the key is you just need to do things a little bit better. One of the differences between a fish that's eating and a fish that's biting is that uh, there's times when you can trigger a strike and that's from real erratic actions. If you're out there trying to feed them something like a minnow or, or something that would just really an insect type thing where it, it, it really they have to feed to want it. Uh, that's different than triggering strikes. Sometimes when you have an erratic action bait uh, or you're fishing faster or you know, more aggressively than other people, a lot of times you can trigger bites. So it's almost a reaction like you drag something by your cat and they turn and jump on it real quick. And actually, if you can trigger strikes, you're going to be more effective than trying to feed fish. No, I think you're totally right. You know, and I think you and I both being avid ice anglers, I think we realize that at times that sometimes when 
you're downsizing and finessing through the ice and where finesse is the king, that sometimes getting a, a spoon or something that's making a little more commotion will, if not catch fish, will at least draw fish in and get a reaction. And they're just out of instinct. They'll hit it. It's, I don't know if it's anger or they can't help themselves or what, but it does, it does work. So there's you know a lot of tips to that, but now you're catching fish. What are the first, some, take us through the aspects of, again, of what you look at. Do you look at the depth? Do you look at the color, the weight, the whole presentation? How do you, how do you analyze it? You know, it's interesting. If you're fishing a, a hard bait, say a crankbait, a lot of times if you look at how the fish is hooked, it really helps you uh, figure out if you're on the right pattern. So the fact that you got bit is a good thing. But if that fish is, is hooked in the top lip by the back hook on the treble, you know, they might have taken a swipe at it and you just had to have good hooks and got lucky that you caught that fish. That's much different than you've got a fish that T-boned the bait and you've got both the front and back hooks in it, or they've completely engulfed the bait. Then you've got a situation where you go, I've got the right bait on, I've got the right color, uh, and, and so that's something I would stick to. But if I'm starting to catch fish, but I'm, they're just pecking at it, that's the thing where I'll start playing with different colors, different sizes, you know, different presentations until I start getting those bites that really indicate that they want to feed on that bait. This is going to be the toughest question. Both of us having fish tournaments, both of us been around filming television where we really had to produce bites on a timeline. You're catching some fish, but it's erratic. You really haven't established anything. When do you move from fish to find fish? That's a tough question because you just never know when those fish are going to turn on or off. Um, a lot of times there'll be, there'll be schools of fish that will turn on at a certain time of day. And you actually want to try and hit those, uh, what they're called feeding windows where you want to be there at the right time for those particular fish. That's especially true on muskies. You may raise a fish two or three times, but you can't get it to bite. And you come back and you start playing with uh, what time is it going to feed. But on those other ones, the nice thing about fishing new bodies of water is without memories, you're not going to sit on a school as often or as long typically as you might if you are if you have memories. I mean, uh, I've heard it a million times. I was here Memorial Weekend last year or two years ago, and we really killed them on this spot using this method. Well, that particular season might have been a much earlier spring or a much later spring, and, and uh, memories can really hamper you in terms of sticking to locations or, or spots or baits or things that much longer than you should. And so I'll, I'll, I'll give fish, uh, the, the time, but if, if, if I'm not feeling good about it, I'll hopefully have secondary or third spots that I could go to, particularly if there's a, a lot of boat traffic over the fish that I'm on. Well, I think I want to go circle that right back around what you said earlier about doing some homework. Today with the internet, fishing reports, anglers out there, and even just people out fishing uh, that you can talk to at the boat landing and things, it's really um, it, it's really more important than ever to undertake to get this information because it's so available, isn't it? It really is, and I think there's been a big difference between even a generation ago when people were catching fish to feed their families it was, it was more secretive and, and of course that's still there but i i do think that one thing has changed with uh, the generation that are fishing now is they're they're more free to share their information than than even just uh, you know 10 15 years ago and you know i, I still struggle with that <laughs> because i 
I don't want to uh, give away all my spots, but at the same time, if somebody comes up to me and says, hey, what are you using? I'll say, I'm using this particular bait, this particular color. You know, I'm fishing a lot, say 12, 15, 18 feet of water, and, you know, here's a tip to do it. And, uh, you know, it's fun to help people uh, go out and experience success on the water. Yeah, I'm going to go through one last topic, and I know Julie from Colorado Parks and Wildlife is on the line. We will get to you in a couple minutes, Julie. We will take plenty of time, I promise, because I want to talk about Steamboat Lake, where you're calling from. But the last thing is, when I get off the water, I try to share with people. You and I have made a career out of that, but I can tell the type of information I need to give an angler if his first question is, what did you catch him on, or is it, what depth were they at? You get that? if yeah, no, I, I I get that. Most of the time, you can you can understand at what level they they understand fishing by the first question that they ask. And you know, if they're beginner anglers or younger anglers, especially, I, I really want them to enjoy success. And I'll I'll flat out say, uh, fish this spot and use this bait, and uh, you know you should have success. But I I do think that the depth is more important than the bait in most cases. No, I, I do too. And locating the fish, like you said, obviously best. We could talk about this for hours, Steve, and there's so much more I want to go over with you. We need to get you back on the show soon because I want to talk about some new developments and baits and lines and things that you and I have both been experiencing over the last several months and get people up to date. But we are out of time. But I want to thank you for joining me, folks. I will post uh, a podcast of this on my um on my Facebook page, Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. And Steve, how can people find you if they want to get a hold of you? Best place is just go up on Facebook and uh, and uh, like Lake Commandos or my personal page. I think I, I've uh, eliminated enough guys out there for political posts of late that there's probably room on there as, as well. But uh, no, I'd love to uh, connect with uh, some of your some of your listeners and uh, um, appreciate the opportunity to be on with you again. And maybe we'll uh, get on the water this year. You never know. We'll see how this COVID thing goes. Oh, I'd love it. I would enjoy it. All right. All right. Thanks, Steve. Hall of Fame angler Steve Knaz, uh, host of Lake Commandos. We'll take a quick time out. Then we're going to talk to um, Julie from Colorado Parks and Wildlife from Steamboat and cover a number of topics on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. You are listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. We are going to go right to the phones and hopefully patiently waiting from Steamboat Lake is Julie Arrington. Good morning, Julie. Good morning. I am here. Uh, good. I Sorry we got a little late, but we will take plenty of time. Uh, good friend Steve Panaz was getting into some interesting fishing, and I wanted to kind of follow through on it. But <clears throat> speaking of fishing and getting outdoors, you're calling us from a great place. You're from Steamboat Lake, is that right? That is correct. And actually, our boat ramp opens today. Wow. So tell people, you know, for people who don't know, I guess by the name they'll probably guess, but tell them where Steamboat Lake State Park is located and describe the park a little bit. Yeah, so Steamboat Lake State Park is about 45 minutes north of Steamboat Springs. Um, we're just up Elk River Road or Route County Road 129, about 26 miles. Um, we've got just over a thousand acre lake and about um, 1,100 acres of land, including campgrounds with 188 campsites. We've got a visitor center, hiking trails. Um, we have a concession there that is a marina that provides slips and boat rentals and services. Um, 
and yeah, a lot of just different app opportunities for outdoor recreation, including biking, horseback riding, nature study, fishing, and boating. Now, I want to get to the fishing, and then <clears throat> I know you've got a couple topics you want to spend some time on after that. But before that, what is open there? And you said the boat ramp opens. I know people, um, are any of the marinas or concessions open? And then when does camping open there? Great questions. <laughs> We're just finding that out. So the park has been open for day use um, this whole time. So shore fishermen have been welcome this whole time. Um, a lot of people are fishing the creeks right now. Willow Creek is doing really well. Mill Creek is doing really well. Um, uh, before we were able to open the boat ramps to provide um, boat inspections for aquatic nuisance species, people were getting out on float tubes and kayaks and things like that. Um, but today we are providing boat inspections um, from 8 to 4, and the boat ramp is open at the marina um, for that purpose. And I, um, I understand that the fishing is pretty good, and you have a trout fishery. Is that right? Yes, we do. Um, we are stocked for a variety of trout. Um, we have occasionally a brown and a brookie show up, but mostly it is rainbows and cutthroats. And and people are doing pretty well up there? They are doing really well. Uh, initially in the creeks, it's great. Um, springtime is a great time to catch them up there. Um, they are starting to move out as the water moves up. So at the inlets and the creeks, it's doing pretty well. Also down at the dam, um, which is accessed by Sage Flats, um, people are catching them in the deep water down there as well. And then tell me about um, the camping. Are, when and are you or when will you be open for camping? Yeah, so the big news that everybody wants to know about is camping because we have been closed to camping. Um, normally, we're in high country, so we would be closed um, until Memorial Day weekend. Um, with the governor's announcement that camping is going to start reopening, he asked us to work with our counties uh, to make sure that we were working in accordance to what they were trying to do. And so Route County, the county that we are in, um, did have a lodging ban, which also prohibited camping through May 31st. So the managers of Route County in Route County of the other parks and um, wildlife areas got together and met with the commissioners and basically provided them enough information that they felt comfortable with us going ahead and being able to open earlier than that. So starting on the 19th, uh, Yampa River State Park and Stagecoach State Park will open to camping. And then um, at Steamboat Lake and Pearl Lake, um, Pearl Lake is right next to Steamboat Lake. We are going to open on the 22nd. Again, we're a little bit behind just because of the higher elevation. We're a little bit soggy still. So we're getting things opened up and we'll be ready for Memorial Day weekend on the 22nd. Now, that sounds fantastic. Now, with camping opening up across the state, I know there's a topic you want to touch on. Colorado has a very robust bear population, and, you know, that's a good thing. We love the wildlife. We love to observe them, especially from a distance. But we have to be careful when we're out, especially this time of the year, when they come out hungry and they're foraging. We have to be really respectful and understand our interaction with bears, don't we? Absolutely, yep. And steamboat area in Route County is um, perfect habitat for bears. And so we do need to be mindful of those guys. Um, 
focus has been on human health and safety um, because of the virus issues, which we still want to promote, but we don't want to forget all the good things that we've done for wildlife as well. So when people are coming up to camp, well, first of all, we ask if anyone is feeling ill, please don't come camp with us. Um, make a reservation for another time. And um, keep in mind the wildlife issues that we have at the park. So we've been lucky at Steamboat Lake. I'd say lucky and also our campers are doing a good job because they do care about our wildlife um, because we haven't had major issues and we want to keep it that way. But we are in bear country. So things to remember though are you want to really keep a clean camp. Um, no food smells. Um, if you're going to be can uh, cooking outside, which most people are, make sure you clean up. Don't leave that burned hot dog on the grill from last night. Make sure you bag it up and put it away. Um, additionally, we have dumpsters located throughout the campgrounds. Um, they have a latch that will prevent bears from getting into them easily. So we ask that everybody, when they're throwing their trash away, to make sure the lid is closed and that latch gets closed behind them. People that are tent camping should also be extra careful to not have anything that smells. Um, that can even be like toothpaste, deodorant, but definitely, you know, don't take a granola bar in there for a snack for later. Make sure that stuff is all packed up appropriately and put in your car. Well, and people need to understand bears can smell things miles away, three to five miles. So if you have cherry-flavored lip gloss in your tent, they don't know it. They just smell cherries. They don't know that it's exactly. artificial. And you have right. to be, and, and, and it's not only for the sake of people. We don't want people, to, we want people to be safe, but it's also for the safety of the bears, isn't it? Definitely, yeah. People are our number one priority, honestly. Um, but the way we keep people safe is to keep bears away from them. Bears may not even be aggressive. Um, they may not be, you know, trying to hurt people, but they're a big animal with a lot of um, things that can hurt people on them, like their big teeth and their big claws. So even if a bear doesn't mean to be aggressive and gets too close to a person, they could hurt a person, and we absolutely don't want that to happen. Um, so our and, primary goal is to pr protect people. And then if something does happen, it's fun to watch the bears, but if they become habitually close to people, they have to be euthanized, and you're hurting the bears. So you have to certainly don't ever feed one. Correct, yeah. And so it does keep the bear safe because um, if a bear does become aggressive, yeah, unfortunately, um, we are, human safety is our priority, so we have to deal with that bear appropriately. So it keeps bears um, safer by keeping them away from people, so they're not going to be habituated to human food. They're not going to be used to being hanging around people. And then it also keeps them how they're intended to be. They're a wild animal. They're supposed to be out in the woods eating natural foods and not diving into dumpsters and eating human foods. All right, Julie, we are out of time, but you just, uh, you know, we've talked a little bit about Steamboat Lake, but we couldn't do justice to the beauty up there. It's just an incredible part of the state, isn't it? It is. It's absolutely gorgeous. We're surrounded by zir the Zirkles, and we've got a beautiful mountain lake. Um, so come up and see us. Make sure you make a reservation. We get very popular, and reservations are required. So cpwshop.com is a great place to look up where you can make those reservations. Thank you, Julie, and uh, and hopefully a lot of people take advantage of your great facility up there. Yeah, definitely. That's, 
That's Julie Arrington from Steamboat Lake. We're going to take a timeout. When we come back, we're going to switch things up, and we're going to talk about uh, some of the other things Colorado Parks and Wildlife does, and that's endangered species projects. And then we're going to, uh, next hour, we have a ton of fishing and some shooting to talk about. All that coming up on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. You are listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. Let's go right to the phones. And joining us from Colorado Parks and Wildlife is Tina Jackson. Good morning, Tina. Good morning, Terry. What a beautiful morning. Are you calling us from the metro area? Because it is beautiful up here in Fort Collins. Yeah, I'm I'm in Denver, and it it's looking really nice right now. I took my dog for a walk this morning in a rainstorm. But, you know, we never argue about rain here in no, and we're looking at some some sunny, hot weather, maybe a preview of summer coming up. But, you know, we talk a lot on this show about fishing and hunting and camping and all the things that Colorado Parks and Wildlife does. In fact, Parks and Wildlife has been a partner on this show since 1998. But I think sometimes we need to also talk about the other species, the other programs that parks, by both by mandate and by charter, are, are – um, are required to do, and they're important things. And one of those is the endangered species. Tell us a little bit about some of the endangered species projects. What does Parks and Wildlife do with endangered species? Yeah, well, this is a great time to be talking about endangered species. Yesterday was Endangered Species Day, one of those holidays I hope someday we don't have to celebrate anymore. Um, but here at Parks and Wildlife, we we're responsible for all of the wildlife species in the state, and that includes over 20 species that are actually listed as um, endangered, either at the federal or the state level, and another um, 10 or more that are listed as threatened. And so, you know, our main goal with Parks and Wildlife is to keep more species from being added to those lists. We want to make sure that all the other species in the state don't need those sorts of protections. But once a species reaches that level and needs that protection, you know, we do everything we can to try to recover those species, make it so that they're not facing the threats that put them on those lists and get them off the list and, you know, moving on their merry species way of just kind of being out there in the world and not needing that additional protection. Well, well, and I think there's a few reasons for that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. Number one is we don't want any species to go extinct. We don't even know what impact down the road that could have to our ecosystem, and sometimes there's unintended consequences, but just we, we love to have the animals to enjoy. No matter what level of the food chain they are or what level we think they're at, they add to our enjoyment having. We don't want any animal to go extinct. And also the other thing that a lot of people don't realize and that's the people who enjoy other animals that aren't on the list, our, our game in Colorado, our wildlife, whether they're wildlife watchers or hunters. Um, it really, once an animal becomes listed, it affects your ability to manage some of that habitat, doesn't it? It does, yeah. There's, there's a lot of reasons to, to keep a species from being listed, um, um, to work towards that goal, as well as to try to recover a species. And, and you're right. I mean, we, we don't know what the implications are of losing these different species within the food chain. Um, and so we want to keep everybody out there. And, you know, one of the examples that I like to use a lot is I work with the black-footed ferret. And this is a species we actually thought was extinct. And we found a small population up in Wyoming 
um, back in the early 80s, and we've worked to recover that species. And we've gone from eight individuals back then to we've got probably pushing about a thousand of them. And and the reason the ferret is so important is it's important to its food chain, but it's also the only native ferret to North America. Um, so you know we would have lost something really special if if we had not worked to um, get the ferret to the point it is now. Now, I know some of the other species you talked about that you're working with and jumping mice and bats, people wouldn't think of those. Tell me about those. Yeah, so um, so I have a really strange mix of species that I work with, but um, two of my other listed species are um, two different subspecies of the jump, the meadow jumping mouse, um, the prebles meadow jumping mouse. If you live here along the Front Range, you've probably heard about them. They're um, considered threatened throughout their range, which is the Front Range of Colorado and Wyoming. And then um, just in the last five or so years, the New Mexico meadow jumping mouse, which occurs along the southern edge of Colorado, um, was listed as federally endangered. Um, and it occurs... Here in Colorado, um, the heart of its range is in New Mexico and then also a little bit in Arizona. And so we're working on protecting the riparian areas that those two species um, depend on. One of the really exciting things in the last year, you've probably heard about Fisher's Peak, our new um, state park here in the next year or two down in the southern part of the state. As we were getting ready, learning more about that about that property, we actually found out we have New Mexico meadow jumping mice on that property. So, you know, we are taking the mouse into consideration as we develop that property for recreational uses. Um, and then I also work with all of our native bat species, and two of those species are currently being reviewed for federal listing. And both of those are because of a disease that's impacting bats across North America called white nose syndrome. So we're working with the federal agents to pull together information and see if they do need those additional protections and what we can do to, to um, work with that process. Now, the last question I have for you, Tina, um, we've, we're all experiencing this COVID thing, and you mentioned bats, and we you know there's these rumors flying that it may have developed in China and bats, and, and we talk about the first. Is there any indication either way that COVID is having an effect or is there an effect or a benefit from any of these animals in the research for COVID? Yeah, so it was really interesting when the whole coronavirus thing started here in, in the U.S., you know, I thought, oh, well, I'm going to have to work from home and do all these other things. Well, then we started looking into it a little bit more and researchers with some of the wildlife health groups started looking both Black-footed ferrets and bats are species that we're actually concerned about giving COVID to them. Um, and you mentioned bats and the potential that this came out of bats in, in Asia. And it, it is possible, it is likely that that, that happened. Bats in, in parts of the world are are reservoirs for these very different diseases. And that's a really interesting research question because the bats seem to do just fine with it. And as we study the bats and, and the diseases that they, they have, we can actually learn more about how we can treat them and us and how we can keep from, from having problems. 
ferrets are a different story when it comes to COVID. And part of that is that uh, that genetic bottleneck they went through. And they're very susceptible to things like human influenza and um, SARS-CoV-1, um, which is closely related to the one we're dealing with now. And so we're very concerned about the ferrets in the world um, getting uh, this coronavirus. And the importance of that is we have most of our ferrets that we use for release come out of captive populations. And so all of those captive facilities are now taking extra precautions to make sure that they don't bring in um, COVID into those captive environments because we're, we're not quite sure how those ferrets would be able to handle that. Well, another reason to protect species because they may give us clues as we develop things for this and it shows you how important endangered species are. Tina, we are out of time, but really interesting. I'm, I'm sure there's information on the CPW website. Am I right? There is a ton of information on our website about all the individual species and then about the bigger projects that we're working on as well. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. And that was just interesting information. Thank you, Tina. Yeah. Thank you, Terry. You bet, Tina Jackson. We'll take a quick time out, and the folks from Sun Power Sports are going to join us and talk about some great things happening there. And Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. You're listening to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan. We're going to go right to the phones, and joining us from Sun Power Sports is Mark Kite. Good morning, Mark. Hey, good morning, Terry. You know, Mark, with everybody, you know, I, I mentioned this earlier in the show, there's no youth sports going on. You can't go to a movie theater, even out to dinner. And people are just hungry for things to do. And they're really turning to the outdoors in Colorado and finding ways to get out. Even people that haven't done it for years or maybe have never done it before. And they're looking for ways to recreate outdoors. Well, um, OHV, OHV vehicles and motorcycles really play into that don't they yeah they do it's it's uh it is just crazy you know you're absolutely right all the you know once once we got to open up our showroom floor which was uh two saturdays ago um you know it really really is just you just cannot believe the influx of coloradans in here you know doing their thing and getting ready to go outdoors you know whether it's on the lakes or camping or you know all of that stuff so we're just seeing a just a it's crazy we're very 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 busy right now which is just it's it's just great to see well, and one of the um, things we're fortunate in Colorado is we have so much federal and state land that's actually set aside for recreation. We have just trails that are motorized recreation everywhere throughout the state. I would think that a great way for a family or a couple of people that are kind of cooped up to go and explore Colorado would be on the, the side-by-side units that seem to be becoming so popular. Yeah, there's no question. You know, I mean, a lot of the new side-by-sides, you know, that are out this year are really, really cool. Lots of upgrades. And it probably is our number one selling, you know, unit right now, um, you know, as, as as people start to get back out, you know, into the world and do their thing. So, uh, you know, yeah, there's no question. The side-by-side market is just phenomenal, and we're doing a ton of side-by-side business right now. It's it's just, yeah, lots and lots and lots of cool stuff going on. What are some of the 
side-by-sides that seem to be popular in some of the brands you carry. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, probably the hottest, you know, the hottest selling, you know, side-by-sides, uh, you know, the Polaris Razor, you know, uh, and a lot of the 72-inch turbo stuff is really, really popular right now. Uh, and then on the flip side is, you know, the Can-Am stuff. Uh, Can-Am makes a comparable model in a 72-inch Maverick uh, that's also a turbo. And uh, so you see a lot of that stuff going on right now is a lot of the turbo stuff, you know, we're doing a lot of that. But, you know, I got to be honest, we, we it's such a full gamut. You know, we do, that's probably the number one selling models, but we do a ton of side-by-side stuff for, you know, the outdoorsman, the, the hunter, the fisher that's more utilitarian, you know, um, with full cabs. They got heat and air conditioning in them nowadays. And so it's just, it's just amazing how, you know, all of our brands here have really stepped up their game with, with product. What are some of the other types of vehicles and brands that you do carry there? Yeah, so we do uh, we do a full line of Honda, uh, Kawasaki, Can-Am, Polaris. Uh, we do Sea-Doo. Uh, we do Spider. We do Slingshot. We do Hammerhead Go-Karts. Uh, and, of course, uh, our standalone brand, Harley-Davidson. So we do Harley as well. One last question I have for you. I've noticed some uh, press releases from Colorado Parks and Wildlife, and there's still been some issues with OHB registrations, you know, the offices being closed or open. Do you do OHB registrations right on site there? We do. And I'll tell you, you know, when I talk about the influx of people coming to the dealership, ironically, um, Tuesday we will have OHV stickers back here. We do sell OHV stickers. We're currently out. We had an influx yesterday of about 75 people buying OHV stickers yesterday here at the dealership. But we absolutely are a retailer of OHV, and you can buy your OHV stickers right here at Sun Enterprises. All right, my friend, how do they find you? Yeah, you can find us on the web at sunent.com or sunharleydavidson.com, or you can find us, uh, you know, I-25 to the 84th Avenue exit, get off on 84th, go east two blocks to Pearl, and just come up Pearl to about 89th, and five-acre campus, you can't miss us. And it's beautiful, a great selection, good people, and we know you're taking all the necessary for the showroom is open with all the necessary precautions, So, and a lot of your bikes are staged outside, so you can come and see them there without even having to go in, right? Yeah, just a real quick point on that. That's a super great point. You know, we, t- we take it very, very seriously. You know, we're disinfecting. We're one of the only retail businesses that I've been to where we have masks for people. We have, we have gloves. We have hand sanitizer at the doors. Uh, so we're doing our part to, to, to try to keep everybody healthy you know both customers and employees both all right my friend i'm glad to hear business is good and the public is supporting you we need that and we need different ways to recreate in the outdoors thank you mark all right thank you terry you bet mark kite from sun sun's been a partner to the show for gosh going back to the early 2000s both this and my television show and you know i talked to all my partners this week and we'll be talking more about them as we get into the show too and they've all been so supportive and they've all been reaching out to the public and doing the right things by the way i want to remind everybody to follow us on facebook terry wickstrom outdoors we get we always post a few of the podcasts after the show on our facebook page we post links to our YouTube channel. If you're starting out fishing in Colorado, you're going to find tons of information by just scrolling down my Facebook page. And also by going to my YouTube channel, The Best of Fishing with Terry Wickstrom, even though we traveled from the Arctic Circle to the equator, about half the shows were filmed right here in our backyard within a day's drive of Denver. So there's lots of great places to go and information on how to fish. So that's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on Facebook and the best of fishing with Terry Wickstrom on YouTube. Speaking of fishing, we're going to take a time out, and we come back. Nate Zielinski is going to join us and talk walleye fishing on Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on 104.3 The Fan.